Hey guys, welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. I'm Josh Horowitz. Today's episode, I am thrilled to say, is Woody Allen. Um, this one requires a bit of an introduction, to say the least. Woody Allen uh, is... This is his first podcast appearance on any podcast. Maybe his only one. Who knows? Um, I uh, I have to say this is uh, this is a moment. This was a moment to sit down with Woody Allen for thirty plus minutes and uh, pick his brain uh, about his new movie, um, Magic in the Moonlight, and really about much much more. This uh, this interview uh, talks about his stand up career his uh, days growing up in Brooklyn, um, a lot of, uh, we hit on a lot of things. It's really actually very much more than uh, just about his his new film, which is delightful, I should say, starring Emma Stone and Colin Firth. Um, I feel like we all have a very personal relationship with the work of Woody Allen. Um, I certainly do, being a lifelong New Yorker, being someone that, as you'll hear in the interview, I, I reveal a little bit of, of my own um, personal uh, past with Woody Allen in that. Uh, my dad uh, knew him a bit growing up um, in Brooklyn. Uh, I don't go into on the on the show itself, though I talked to Woody about this later, that my mom actually also randomly knew Woody Allen uh, in the, I guess, the early days of his stand-up career. Um, this was something that growing up, as you can imagine, as a fan of his work, blew my mind to know my parents actually uh, had... Uh, interactions with this uh, man that created so much profoundly um, inspirational work for, for my own career um, and just as a moviegoer his films really have um, have really marked my life in many different ways it's it's uh, it's not hyperbole to say that um, there's really no one I don't know I would want to sit down and talk to more than someone uh, like Woody Allen um, and this interview certainly lived up to um, all that I had hoped it would be. Uh, Woody uh, picks his interviews very carefully nowadays, doesn't do that much, and uh, it's, uh, it's a true honor that um, he said yes to this, that his team said yes to this, and uh, I'm, I'm profound, profoundly grateful. Um, I, don't, I guess there's not much more to say, except um, I hope you guys enjoyed as much as I enjoyed sitting down with him. Just to set the scene a little bit, um, I was asked to moderate the press conference for Magic in the Moonlight, uh, which I did with him, uh, with Woody and uh, Colin Firth and Jackie Weaver. Um, moderated the press conference for a bunch of journalists. Uh, that was hugely entertaining, also kind of frightening, um, but he was amazing. And uh, right afterwards, I went off to Woody's office, uh, sat in his screening room, uh, set up the mics, you know, poked around a little bit had one of his Diet Cokes, and uh, we were off to the races. He came in looking for uh, a sweet. He likes to have a sweet after his lunch. He had just had lunch. And he found uh, the first uh, vanilla Tootsie Roll he'd ever encountered. And that's where you're going to hear this conversation start off. Uh, Woody Allen chewing on his first vanilla Tootsie Roll. So here you go, guys. Woody Allen on Happy, Sad, Confused. Tweet me at Joshua Horowitz. Let me know what you think. Use the hashtag Happy Sad Confused. And uh, enjoy this special moment for me. And I hope you guys get as much a kick out of it as I did. Uh, here he is, Woody Allen. The Tootsie Roll will work its way into <laughs> oblivion in a minute. For so. those of you listening, this is uh, the, the sound of 
Woody Allen consuming his first uh, vanilla Tootsie Roll, which is a special moment. I've never had a vanilla Tootsie Roll in my life. I grew up with chocolate Tootsie Rolls. <laughs> but I just had lunch, and they forgot to send the Snickers. <laughs> and so I'm desperate for candy. Is that in your particular rider, uh, that you always need Snickers in every green room of every talk show you've ever been on? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Snickers and Nestle's Crunch. Oh, okay, okay. Um, first of all, uh, I, I want to remind you of a conversation. We, we, I've talked to you once before. I uh, had a conversation with you about six years ago on the phone. And, you know, everybody, I feel like, feels a, a very personal relationship to your work. And certainly, for me growing up, I was regaled with stories of my father, who uh, was and is uh, Larry Horowitz, who knew you oh. um, way back when uh, mm. in, in Brooklyn. Sure. And, um, uh, you know, I want to, can I set the record straight? Because growing up, he told me that there was truancy related to Hebrew school uh, in relation to you and him. Do you, do you have memories of such a thing occurring? Yes, I remember him well. <coughs> I, I remember I was truant in Hebrew school and high school all the time because um, the greatest pleasure of my life was to play hooky. Because you you didn't it was spontaneous. You were going into school, which was a nightmare, and suddenly, you would say, "Hey, I don't have to go. I can get on the BMT subway on Avenue J. Go to Times Square. And instead of sitting in class, we could go to the Paramount or the Capitol, see the movie, and I'd be sitting there." 10.30 in the morning, watching a movie at the Paramount <coughs> or watching the Duke Ellington Orchestra or something yeah. and not being in school. Were there truant officers on the lookout? Were you no. ever... No, that w that's only in comic books. <laughs> there were no truant, truant officers. Because my dad always warned me that truant officers would find me, and, I, and the apple does not fall far from the tree because I was a horrible truant as a child. I barely went to high school. Uh, it was. It worked out in the end, thankfully for both of us, I guess. But it's still very easy in New York City to the be a truant. The truant officer was in the in the Mickey Mouse comics, I think. <laughs> <coughs> but no. But you had to um, you had to you know bring a note from the doctor. Yeah. To school, but you could always you know forge that yourself. Forge or that. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you have a particular nostalgia for that time? Do you think back to? childhood days often, or is that something that just comes up when people <coughs> remind you of those days? Well, much of childhood was loathsome because it was school. <laughs> right. And school was, when I went to school, it was not like my kids. My kids, you know, go to some nice school in New York and everything's, you know, delightful and the classes are small and personal and the teachers never yell. You know, we had brutal, terrible teachers when I went to school. And uh, school was awful, and, and you hated it. They taught you not to learn and to hate school. That's all they taught you. <laughs> and so <coughs> I have very nice memories of the times that I was able to play hooky and not go to school, and very nice memories of Friday afternoon where you get out and you didn't have to go back. <laughs> it was like a Monday furlough morning. for 17, 72 hours. Mm, just yeah. to get out. <laughs> it, it was a godsend. <laughs> um, is there, 
when you look back, is there is there a happiest time in your life? I mean, when you think back, for instance, to the stand-up days, the early stand-up days, which I would think was must have been a rush to get on stage for the first time and to to really feed off that crowd. Mm-hmm. Is that something that it was nerve-wracking? Mm. I, I was a nervous. I was nervous about performing because I was a writer for years before, and if you're a writer, you're home in your own room, quiet, and and uh, or you write a television show, you're in a in a room with maybe a couple of other writers or something, but it's very private. Then you're a performer and you get out there and there's a lot of people, you know, looking at you. (laughs) And the hardest thing to do is to, um, and the most nerve-wracking, is to do a stand-up act. If you're in a Broadway show, a live show, (coughs) you're with other people and you're talking to them and you you don't even know there's an audience out there. If you're playing music, you're enjoying yourself, and you don't know there's an audience, you know. But when you're a stand-up comic, there's an audience out there, and you have it's you and them, yeah. And you have to you're talking to them, and and what you can't understand at first is that they like you. They're there because they like you, but it's hard to fathom that, you know. You you <laughs> see them as potential enemy right <laughs> you've got to make them laugh or they won't like you or they or they're going to heckle you or they're going to walk out or they're going to be but the truth is <clears throat> and it takes a while to learn this because it's uh, counterintuitive there you can only lose them right they're predisposed. They're, they're on your yeah, side. They're on your side, but it's hard to learn that. <laughs> so, does any aspect uh, uh, th- does any aspect of that experience is, do you miss that? Because it occurs to me when we did this press conference just moments mm-hmm. ago, that's probably as close as you get to entertaining an audience, and they're still eating out of your hand just as they were forty years ago. Yeah, I can, for some reason I can do that. Uh, that's one of the only skills I have. <laughs> if I if I didn't have that skill. Um, I would have had a menial job my whole life because uh, all my friends went to college. I never finished college. I never finished the first year of college. And <clears throat> I don't know what I, you know, I wasn't a good student. Uh, my, my friends in Midwood High School were all becoming doctors and lawyers. And, and, um, and um, you know, it was, it was so, so strange. And I, I was lucky to be able to make people laugh. And it's something I, I could always do. So I can still do that if I talk at a college or, right. or go someplace. Now, I will say this. I, at this stage of my life, I get uh, a fair amount of unearned laughs. Right. Because they're... they're <laughs> you walk out and they already are laughing. And they're... they're, they're la- yeah. Uh, you know, so... Does that feel hollow to you? Does it, feel, does, it, does it sort of like, wait, let me, let me actually earn this before you start cackling, or are you, are you a grateful? You'll take anything you can get. No, no, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, when you f- start out as a comic and they don't know you, right? you have to earn every single laugh. You know, an unknown comic. You know, when I was younger, starting out as a comic, you know, if uh, Mort Saul would go out on stage or Lenny Bruce or something, they knew them, and they they had a following. It was one thing. When I went out, because I was uh, came along a little bit after them, uh, they didn't know me right. at, at first, and so it was you know you have to earn every single laugh. 
now it's a different story. Right. Uh, and I've seen that with with iconic comics. You know, I don't, I'm not comparing myself, but I, I've seen older iconic comics, Groucho Marx, Jack Benny, in the latter part of their career. They come out and, you know, the audience is, you know, buying the ticket. Grinning already, yeah. Well, Seinfeld talks about that still, that he, I mean, and he's still on the stand-up circuit, but he... Who is this? Uh, Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, Jerry Seinfeld. Talks about a similar phenomenon where he, yeah, the first 10 minutes, they're his, whether whatever he says, and then you get past that, and then he has to earn it. You kind of have to get through that grace period. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you've also, you've employed some some great stand-up actors who are also great actors in recent years, and one, one gentleman, Louis C.K., um, I'm just curious... Have you watched Louis Louis's show, Louis? I mean, because some uh, pe- some uh, people uh, have compared uh, it very much to your to your work. I haven't seen much of him on television because I <coughs> I'm out every night. Right. You know, I mean, I, when uh, when I uh, I come home either from shooting or from editing or from writing, you know, and generally my wife and I go out for dinner, and we don't come home till about eleven o'clock at night, mm. uh, and uh, you know, I'm tired. I usually get into bed, watch a little bit of the news, and by 11:30, I'm I'm out. So I I haven't I don't see much television. Once in a while, I I'll stop and say where I see the most television is on the treadmill. Yeah, and I'm only on it for half an hour, but in that half an hour, I I, I am able to watch you know something. But usually, what I watch. Uh, the two guys who do the sports show on cable television. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you talked about it at the press conference. I mean, it's also a good casting tool, apparently. helps with uh, seeing the work of someone like Emma, Emma Stone. You, yeah. s- you can see people through the treadmill through that half an hour. is valuable. I, sh- I, never, would have, I never would have seen her otherwise because I, I, I don't see those movies. Um, not because not they're bad movies. I just, you know, they're aimed at a different right. audience that they get, and it's not me. So, so I wouldn't have seen it, but she she's so uh, captivating. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you're notoriously um, probably the harshest critic of your own work. Um, what's your assessment? Can you have any kind of valid assessment of Magic in the Moonlight and your I related to your other films? I am always disappointed. <laughs> it's the baseline. <laughs> um, yes, it's just always because there's a big difference between what one sets out to make and what one winds up with. Because what you set out to make exists always in fantasy. It exists in your mind. It exists on paper. It doesn't exist for real. So it's just stuff on paper or stuff in my mind. I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be great. Emma's going to come down here, and this will be great, and this will be great. Then when you do it, you know, Emma doesn't want to do these words because they're hard to do, and the... You know, the weather was not so great, so we have to shift it to a different location because the sunlight's too harsh there. And, um, you know, the joke, it takes much longer to for her to shuffle the deck of cards than I thought. And, you know, by the time it's over... You know, you just want to <laughs> give up. <laughs> Basically, filmmaking is is one giant sad compromise. That's what Marshall <laughs> Brickman said. Marshall Brickman said that... Um, Every morning, the truck pulls up with fresh compromises. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, in one interview, I even heard you say that, like, after seeing Manhattan, you 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 literally didn't even want to release it, which is I didn't. Right. I thought if this is the best I could do, I better pack it in. And I offered United Artists to make a film for them for nothing if they would not release it. If they would just, and they said, well, we can't do that. First of all, we like the film, but more important, you know, there's a bank loan that pays for this film, and we can't just. You know, not release it. It's a, you know, cost a few million dollars. At that time, that that was, a, you know, a few million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> still important. Still, still a, a good chunk of change. Um, Probably still a few million dollars. <laughs> you, um, the, the film was great, and there's there's one there are a few sequences that in particular jump out at me. Um, your protagonist Stanley at one point, um, kind of breaks down contrary to his own belief system and just resorts in a way to praying. He's kind of. It just it feels like he has to. Have you, in your adult life, ever contemplated praying even for for anything at all? No, not really. Not not in my adult. You know, when I was a kid, they they beat you into praying. <laughs> so <laughs> you prayed if you you know, or they hit you. But uh, no, not in my adult life because it, it doesn't mean anything. It's like it's like the people that say um, have a good day. Uh, it doesn't work. You know, you don't have a good day, <laughs> like necessarily. Uh, how did your parents reconcile your lack of a belief system? I mean, were they were they fine with your your, uh, your view well, on religion? Well, of course, they're both dead, so I <laughs> I don't get much flack from them now. But uh, they they um, my father didn't care. My father was not religious at all. He was a street guy. And it um, didn't mean anything to him. My mother would have liked me to have been more observant, mm -hmm. but you know, didn't. Matter. But she would have she would have liked me to carry on the tradition and and at least, you know, be more observant than I was. I was particularly, um, you know, I found it all nonsense all the time. It, it just seemed silly to me. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the. Um the pan I mean, the, the pantheon of people that you've you've employed in your films, the actors, and in this film, you, as I said earlier at the, the press conference, there are a bunch of new people you've never worked with before, and it, you know it strikes people that like you've worked with everybody, but but in fact, you, there are many, some, arguably some of the greatest actors of the last fifty years that, for whatever reason, haven't been in your films, <laughs> and I'm mm -hmm. curious, is there like one that that got away that you, I mean, you know, for instance, like Tom Hanks, Jack Nicholson, Pacino, De Niro, none of these gentlemen have have appeared in your films, surprisingly, when I look no, through it. Uh, there's a number of conflicting reasons. <laughs> One is, for years, most of the films I did starred me. Right, there's yeah, so, that. So that was one that was that eliminated a whole cluster of films. <laughs> then, um, mostly I wrote for women. Right. There were a lot of, all the great, I've worked with all the great women just about, just about every great woman. Um... So I, that's another reason. Uh, a third reason is that those guys you mentioned, they're all so great. They're hard to get. Um, they're always busy. So, you know, I've called De Niro. I've called Dustin Hoffman. I've spoken on the phone with Jack Nicholson. Um, but I can, you know, Nicholson was going to do um, Hannah and her sisters. Um, and I wasn't thinking of Michael Caine at the time because I wasn't thinking of an English guy. Right. You know, Michael Caine's one of my favorite actors, but I didn't want an English or British 
performer. It just would never have occurred to me. Um, when it did occur to me that I could use a British performer, of course, Michael Caine was perfect. But originally, I spoke to Nicholson on the phone. He said, look, I'd like to do this film, but I'm also uh, up for... Prisizana, not up for it, but you know my girlfriend's father's right. directing it, and I, I've got to do it. Uh, so, uh, if he didn't have that, I probably would have had him yeah. for that film. I've spoken to Dustin Hoffman, uh, but he was unavailable. I've spoken, uh, as I say, with uh, Al not Al Pacino, Robert De Niro. Um, uh, you know, I, I could never get these guys. So, and I and I don't often have parts for such great actors. Usually, they're for great actresses. Right. Um, you know, maybe some. I've worked with some pretty good guys, though. Now I'm working with Joaquin Phoenix, Joaquin Phoenix who's a great actor. I've worked with Sean Penn, who's a great actor. I've worked briefly, but with Gene Hackman, Michael Caine. Anthony Hopkins. So I have worked with some pretty good actors, but um, I just have not had an opportunity to work with some of our greatest, Pacino, De Niro, Nicholson. I mean, that's, you know, about as great as you get. From what I hear, uh, Kevin Spacey sent you um, a House of Cards or a Netflix subscription. He's I'd love to, to work with him. If I had anything for him, <laughs> I would do it in a minute. I think he's just great. I followed his movies. I, I followed him when he went on stage. Um, I, I, you know, I consider myself lucky if I had a role for him. Usually when I'm finished with a script, usually the role is for the woman. Right. And in, in uh, Magic in the Moonlight, I needed a British guy. Right. It, it occurs to me that, I don't know, we may never see another filmmaker with the kind of autonomy that you've experienced over such a sustained period. Whether it's the timing, whether it's whatever, you've had a very rarefied odd existence in terms of, of working at a, at, a, at a manageable budget mm -hmm. on your own with Final Cut. Um, I mean, do you count that, again, just uh, according to the luck of timing? And, and how important has that been in terms of like creating the body of work that you have, that you've been able to kind of be an, an island mm -hmm. unto yourself? Uh, some good luck, definitely. And uh, the rest is a con job. <laughs> 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 I, I was lucky because... Uh, I started off with United Artists, and Arthur Krim, who was the head of the company, took a liking to me and regarded me, whether true or not, as an artist. And so he said, leave him alone. So I was with a studio, but they, they left me to be autonomous. Then as I developed... I could actually demand to be autonomous in my contract negotiations. Right. And over the years, um, I, I've just, you know, now I'm independently backed for many years now. And so that's part of the deal. If someone wants to back my films, they, they're told right away, you're not going to see a script. You're not going to have anything to say about it. You're going to put the money in the bank and, you know, you'll get the film and, and that will be it. You, um, that I would have complete say over the advertising, over, the, over everything. Now, I don't throw my weight around and do this, 
it's really more a preventative measure just so somebody doesn't come up with a horrible thing and and right. impose it on me but when i work with the distribution companies like sony sony classics you know i let them do everything and everything's fine i never i never you know have had to say no to them no don't do this or don't do that um I just know that if it came down to it, if they suddenly came to me with a terrible trailer or a terrible, tasteless ad for some reason, which they don't, but if they did, I could always say, no, you can't do that. Right. Um, so so it's it's good to, to have that veto power. Right. Um, but I've never really had to use it, and I, and I don't. And I do all their promotion that they want me to do, and... and um, but I've had a good one of the things also that helps, and I think it helped Mel Brooks for a while too when uh, he was he started out making films. There is uh, an erroneous thought that people have that comedy is some special kind of thing, and they say, oh, "Well, you know, he's a comedy genius. This <laughs> is like, you know, a comedy genius is I." That's, it's not a legitimate genius. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a, a very strange variation on the disease. It's a yeah. It's like <laughs> the, it's like the president of the PTA instead of the president <laughs> of the United States. It's yes. So and and it's always oh, leave, leave him alone. That that's his area. He knows this. We don't know this. Like I am in possession of some secret that nobody else knows. And they leave you alone. And Mel Brooks is in possession of some secret that nobody knows. And leave Mel alone, and you get a funny <laughs> film. Leave me alone. So they would leave me alone. And over the years, my films were successful, and um, enough of them were, so that I could say, "Look, if you want to work with me, this is the way I work." And I and I get no small amount of takers who are willing to say, you see, at this point in life, they know if they work with me, they know uh, the budget's going to be modest, right. that I'm not going to suddenly come to them and say, I'm triple the budget, right. or even over the budget. I mean, if I go over the budget and spec maybe once in a while, but they know it will be a responsible experience, and they know that because the film costs so little, there's almost a sure thing they'll break even, right? And 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 they know that there's very little chance they'll get rich. Only one in uh, you know a few really are, are very profitable. Are there ideas in the drawer that are, have you entertained any that have been beyond kind of the, that that sweet spot in, in terms of budget that you've you've had over the years? I mean. Do you just not entertain ideas that would cost $50 million or $100 million? Um, well, I, I had always thought about the idea of, of making the life of Sidney Bechet, the mm -hmm. great jazz musician, uh, which immediately is an unpopular subject, uh, a non-commercial subject. Uh, he was a New Orleans jazz player, but had a very interesting life and uh, was a miraculous uh, musician. But... One, no one would have heard of him, no one would have cared. And in order to make that film properly, I would need a much more substantial amount of money than I get. And even if I could raise it, my firm belief is that I would lose it for the people. <laughs> uh, that, you know, if you invested 
let's say, 50 or $60 million in that film, my guess is you'd have no chance of, uh, of not losing money. You're not selling the project very well to p potential investors right now. I, 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 to be honest, I don't think it's a good investment. <laughs> does, um, does legacy matter at all to you? I mean, you know, you, you, like 50 or 100 years from now, when people are looking at film, does it matter to you whether they're talking about Woody Allen films? No, because I'll be dead. <laughs> and uh, nothing, you know, I'll get the same kick out of it that Shakespeare gets, having <laughs> having his wonderful legacy. No, I, uh, legacy doesn't mean anything to me. Once you're gone, you're gone, and that's it. And uh, <laughs> doesn't, you know, you're, you have no consciousness. You know how it is when they, uh, you know, when you get a colonoscopy or something and they put you out? <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's what it is. Is there any accounting for, um, I mean, generally filmmakers frankly peak early there's there's usually kind of like a shorter window of productivity in their careers and, and you are remarkably consistent you're still producing amazing work um is there any rhyme or reason in your mind of why you've succeeded where so many others have failed in terms of still creating things i know in your own mind maybe they're not the successes you would imagine them to be but by other standards they are um i think if you just keep your nose to the grindstone don't think about money don't read reviews don't concern yourself with anything but the work, and just keep working. You know, you'll have your share of good stuff over the years, and that's all that counts. And so, you know, I just keep going, and if one hits, it hits, and if one misses, it misses, and, and you just focus on the work. And, and in that way, you know, you, you'll have your share just quantitatively, Statistically, if you make, you know, by the time I'm finished making films, if I have decent longevity, you know, I should be able to make maybe 50 films. Uh, and if I if I make 50 films, just percentage-wise. <laughs> Simply the law of averages. Yeah, the law of averages. <laughs> you know, some of them are going to be good. Do you, are there any scenes that stand out to you, not films, but scenes in, in your career that really either even matched what was in your mind or exceeded um, your own vision. Um, I mean, just to throw that out, some of my favorites, I mean, the, the scene along the Seine and everyone says, I love you, is transcendent. The Manhattan there are a handful. I mean, for you, are any that match what you were hoping to achieve or exceeded it? Uh, yeah, there, there are scenes that, that worked for me. The uh, scene in Blue Jasmine with Kate Blanchett blew up and and um, lost her sanity, lost her cool. It was a scene that worked for me very well. And, uh, and um, uh, yes, there have been scenes that I, I do recall that were, were good. There were, there were some scenes in Vicky Cristina Barcelona mm that worked very well, some romantic moments in that that worked well for me. Ind individual scenes over the years, I've enjoyed. I just haven't liked the films, <laughs> but, but I've enjoyed. There are moments, at least. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I've enjoyed individual moments where they come off, you know, and I, I think to myself, God, that the actor is so good there, and it's, it's better than I had imagined. You know, the scene where... Jonathan Rhys Myers is flirting with Scarlett mm. uh, at the ping pong table. 
that was always a great scene. You know, she, people don't realize she was only 19 years old when she did that picture. Amazing. Um, and and she got off the plane, having slept all night coming from the United States, came right from the plane to the set and did the scene and was great. I had never worked with her. She had never worked with me. We had no conversations about anything. And she came right from here. Naomi Watts did the same thing. She came... Uh, on uh, Tall Dark Stranger, yeah. she had the hardest scene to do uh, of all her scenes. I never, I practically never met her. <laughs> I, uh, I never spoke a word to her. And she came on the set and just simply didn't speak to me, said hello, and, and did the scene full of emotion. And, you know, I guess if you're talented and professional, you can do that. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but the end of next year will be your, your 80th birthday. End of n next year. Yeah, and December of uh, 2015, correct? Uh, I'll be 79 this December right, right. and 80 next December. So big, yes, big, the, big, got, <laughs> big plans for a gala 80th birthday. You strike mm. me as somebody that will not entertain something with balloons or pomp and circumstance. No, 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 no balloons. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's no achievement. It's no... Uh, it's no uh, it's not. It's not a good thing. First of all, because you're getting older, and I'm. I'm hoping, but this is purely a hope based on, is that there's longevity. You know, there's longevity in my family. Right. And so I'm hoping that it rubs off on me. But uh, there's no guarantee of that. Well, lastly, um, in our remaining moments, can I just run through some rapid fire things, kind of like quick answers, if you have any answers to any of these random questions for me? Yeah. Uh, do you have an email address? No. Have you ever seen a movie by Michael Bay? Uh, Transformers movies. Um, he did Bad Boys, Pain and Gain. I'm sensing a no. I have not okay. to the best of my okay. Pros and cons on scooping a bagel. Do you believe in scooping a bagel out, or do you need a bagel? I don't eat bagels. Really? I never liked them. Wow. Uh, do you have a driver's license? I do, but I haven't driven in, I would say, 50 or 60 years. <laughs> uh do you have one treasured piece of movie memorabilia? You, is there anything in particular that you, that has sentimental value? Of memorabilia? Yeah, from your own movies. or No, I have no photos, no clippings, no memorabilia. I don't save any of that. And last two for you. Uh, if you could reshoot any of your films from, from the beginning, is there one that you would go back and want another crack at? Um, probably September. Uh, I shot it twice. I was going to say, <laughs> and, you wanted a third and crack? I think if I could do it a third time, I could I could get it. Third time's the charm. And finally, do you think the New York Knicks are going to win a championship in either of our lifetimes? Oh, yes, yes. Certainly in your lifetime. <laughs> but I do think, uh, I do think uh, if I'm lucky, maybe in my lifetime, too. There you go. Here's Omelo's oh, back, so there's hope. Yeah, I think that's a very good thing. I think that, that's, uh, that he's great and that the Knicks of it were very lucky to get him, and that if they didn't have him last year, they would have won maybe in the single digits. <laughs> uh, we've made history here today. This is Woody Allen's first podcast. I don't know if you realize, but you just did your first podcast. Really? I, I don't even know what a podcast is. Well, you, you did it. <laughs> really? <laughs> Congratulations on that. And, and thank you so much for your time, honestly. It's been oh. such a treat. Thank you. Thank you, sir.